Welcome to the Tree of Life podcast. I'm Joel Ledford, and today I have the privilege of um, sitting with Dr. Patrick Shee. Patrick, welcome. Thanks, Joel. So uh, one of the things that we usually start the uh, conversation out with is just a little bit about your history. And I'm curious to know, how did you end up interested in science? Um, what is your pathway to eventually end up here at UC Davis? Yeah, so I definitely did not know if I wanted to do science when I was uh, starting off as an undergrad at UC San Diego. Um, I actually originally was a political science major, um, but my dad would not pay for my tuition unless I got a degree in a STEM major. Um, and biology always kind of seemed somewhat interesting, so I took some classes and that. And, you know, if I thought I was going to take it somewhat seriously. I wanted to try to at least test out um, what it would be like working in the lab. So I ended up uh, just finding a random lab that took me in as an undergraduate um, in a plant pathology lab working on root knot nematodes, which are crazy organisms and a pain to work with. Hmm. But um, I actually found out that plant biologists are pretty chill. They're pretty cool. And there's a lot of really wide open questions in the field. And um, that really piqued my interest. And uh, I just kind of pursued that, ended up going to grad school, um, got my PhD in plant biology, um, studying photosynthesis. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think I ever expected to become a plant biologist, let alone a biologist when I was like, even in high school. Wow. that's So what, was there a defining moment for you like in, in your undergraduate um, career when you thought, this is what I'm going to do? I don't think there was a de defining moment. I don't think, um, it's more the community and like academic research, postdocs, PIs, grad students are all just really, uh, most of the time, just very genuinely excited about science. And I think that's a really invigorating um, just culture and community to be part of. And I think that's what really drew me to it. Nice. That's great. That's that's really great. So, um, you would I would say that you're a, a synthetic biologist, at least in part. And one of the things that um, I think that people you know have some preconceptions when you say synthetic biology. You know, things that come to mind are like, oh no, no, is, is it like a Terminator thing? <laughs> What's happening? So maybe could you define synthetic biology for us? Yeah. So I think synthetic biology means. A lot of different things to a lot of different people, kind of like what you just mentioned. But um, there's this kind of ethos around in the community that um, it's taking a reductionist approach to science or biology. And what I mean by that is uh, what I, you know, there's this kind of quote from Richard Feynman of what I can't build, I don't understand. And if we truly understand all the molecular components that are part of biology that make life tick, in theory, if we should be able to reconstruct it. So we're taking kind of an engineering approach to biology in order to prove to ourselves that we actually do understand how these systems work. Hmm. So um, I guess one question that would come to my mind then is that since you're, you are taking that really reductionist approach, how do you keep sight of the organism? Yeah, so, you know, there's... Uh, many different synthetic biologists working on many different organisms, and it's really tailored to the types of questions that people are asking. So traditionally, people have worked on some of the simplest organisms like E. coli or yeast because we know those systems very well, so engineering things into them will be the most, will be the low-hanging fruit. And so uh, many people have 
try to engineer metabolism into E. coli or yeast to produce specific compounds of interest. And you know, you can clearly see how there might be biotechnological applications of that where you can make a drug in yeast, perhaps. But at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're testing if we understand how, uh, if we know all the components that are necessary for, say, a metabolic pathway, and shuffling that into a totally new organism and just validating that we can do that. Can we understand basic principles of what's controlling metabolic flux so that we can then improve the amount of uh, product that we can actually produce in these organisms? Oh, okay. So when I, I, um, when I think of yeast and bioengineering in general, I always think of something like um, the production of citric acid. Mm-hmm. So I know that, you know, yeast yeast are used to produce citric acid and this is just the kind of thing that you would expect would be part of a synthetic biology sort of um, application or intention? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, it's just depending on how you cut it. Um, it's kind of more, synthetic biology is more of this perspective. So if you want to say jack up citric acid production, how do you understand the TCA cycle well enough that you can begin to tweak it so that you could actually produce lots of citric acid. Um, another great example is one of the, I would say, argues one of the landmark studies um, well over a decade ago now was uh, Jake Heasling at Berkeley figured out how they could take a pathway for this anti-malarial drug called artemisinin that's found in this uh, specific plant. They found that, meta- uh, discovered the enzyme necessary for that metabolic pathway and then introduced that into yeast so that yeast could now ferment this anti-malarial drug. Um, so hopefully that would increase the access to anti-malarial drugs in general. Oh, that's amazing. So then to be a synthetic biologist, given that it's that perspective, you really need to have probably a pretty broad background, not only in things like biochemistry, but probably understanding a little bit about evolution and mm-hmm. organismal biology and sort of piece that all together. Yeah, I I think that's the exciting part of this is it, again, because it's this reductionist approach, it could be applied at like a very tiny, like at a protein level, like protein design, it could be applied at a metabolism level where you're just piecing together enzymes, or at an organismal level where you want to actually modify physiological properties of specific organisms, whether they're unicellular or uh, multicellular. And then you can get at these kind of bigger questions, like evolutionary questions of um, how does how did this enzyme or metabolism actually evolve? Can we actually, uh, instead of just uh, study extant organisms in the present day, can we actually resurrect aspects of ancient enzymes, ancient metabolisms, and begin to actually experiment on them in the lab? Kind of like molecular Jurassic Park. <laughs> that's, that's, that's great. And so I know that you've been doing some of this with the evolution of photosynthesis, is that right? Yeah, so we've been really interested in the enzyme Rubisco, which is um, the primary source of CO2 fixation in our biosphere. So, you know, 99%, more than 99% of organic carbon is fixed from Rubisco. And we've been really interested in how Rubisco evolved because we actually know that the atmosphere of Earth has changed dramatically over geological times. So CO2 levels were much higher than today. O2 levels were almost non-existent. So it's this totally different climate and yet this enzyme has been around this entire time and we want to understand how it's evolved in the face of these dramatically different climates. So where where did Rubisco evolve? So yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I think 
the thing that kind of is a bit intuitive is we probably think that it evolved in non-photosynthetic organisms because there's other uh, processes other than other than photosynthesis to actually get um, reducing equivalents, and that can actually give you the energy to drive things like carbon fixation. So, but it's is it fair to say that it was likely a bacterial invention or? Yeah, definitely. So. We think that uh, Rubisco definitely predates the rise of eukaryotes, um, which, I don't know, that's a pretty controversial question of when eukaryotes Mm -hmm. evolved, but bacteria were definitely there before, archaea were there before, and uh, that's where we think Rubisco evolved. Do you find Rubisco in archaea? Yes. Okay. So Rubisco are, yeah, again, because we think of, when we think of photosynthesis, we normally think about oxygenic photosynthesis, and that's just like a very small sliver of just photosynthesis. And then within Rubisco, phototrophs are also a very tiny sliver of that because there's many other different ways other than photosynthesis, again, where you can generate that energy to drive carbon fixation. So archaea have different means to do this. Other weird bacteria that are not photosynthetic have these means to do this as well. So when we think of early Earth, uh, there have been many people that have proposed that life may have arose, you know, at the bottom of the ocean, where light mm-hmm. can't get all the way down there. Um, but clearly, life needs organic carbon, and Rubisco might have been one of those early uh, carboxylase enzymes that allowed for that carbon fixation. Nice. So we so we've clearly demonstrated why something like bacteria or or archaea or even yeast are um, really good model organisms to pursue synthetic biology questions, but so why, I mean, you're in the department of plant biology, so why plants? Why are plants good models for synthetic biology um, approaches or questions? Yeah, so my group's really excited about plants because, um, you know, so much work has been done in E. coli and yeast, but very few synthetic biology tools um, and even efforts in general have really been translated into more complex organisms. And we think plants offer a really unique platform to address a lot of challenges that we're gonna face in the future. So uh, part of my group is also associated with the Joint Bioenergy Institute, um, which is part of the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, where we're really interested in how we can use plants as a feedstock to actually make things like biofuels or bioproducts. Um, we're also really interested in how you could engineer plants to improve the nutritional properties of know, vegetables that we eat. Um, There's just everywhere that you look on a daily basis, like the cotton that we're wearing, that's from a plant. So plants touch our lives in many different facets. And if we can begin to manipulate and engineer plants in a more uh, systematic, targeted way, we might be able to actually come up with a lot of interesting solutions to problems that are existing today. Hmm. So do plants pose um, different kinds of challenges or problems that you say wouldn't find in something like bacteria or yeast? Yeah, I mean, the most obvious one to most molecular biologists is they're super slow and very difficult to transform. So when we're talking about engineering things like genetic engineering, we have to be able to introduce uh, you know, a foreign gene or a transgene into these organisms. So like yeast can't make artemisinin, we have to introduce the genes that allow that to happen and transform into yeast. Unfortunately, the process for tra- plant transformations is just much more challenging and much more low throughput, uh, which has been a huge bottleneck in the field, but there are definitely a lot of people that are trying to improve upon that. 
I imagine CRISPR has must really help with this. Yeah, I mean, CRISPR is helping everything. And uh, definitely CRISPR is opening up a lot of new uh, opportunities in genetic engineering and genome engineering in plants right now. Great. Well, that's probably a conversation we'll have to have on a on, a, on another day. But uh, I really appreciate you coming in and sharing your um, research with us and background. And uh, look forward to see what your lab does over the next uh, several years. Thanks, Joel. Thank you.